This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Jeff Voigt. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Foyt, Principal of Medical Device Consultants at Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to evaluating the clinical and cost-effectiveness of medical technologies. I publish frequently on this topic in the peer-reviewed literature. I'm also an associate editor of the Journal of Cost-Effectiveness and Resource Allocation. And lastly and importantly, I'm a 1985 graduate of the Wharton Healthcare Management Program. So if you're interested in joining in the conversation today, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So today, we'll be talking with several experts in the field of corporate board governance. These experts deal with the legal issues surrounding board governance, board makeup, and the effect on performance of a strong board of directors. The importance of a properly functioning board is more relevant today than ever due to the significant changes taking place in the healthcare market. These changes relate to such issues as quality and its incorporation into the reimbursement equation, disruption in reimbursement with the concept of value of care over volume, risk-taking, including shared financial risk in caring for patients, disruptive technologies such as gene therapy, and how a board in general thinks about disruption and the rapid consolidation of providers, payers, and services. And while we won't touch on that, you know, I'm deciding the most recent acquisition of Aetna by CVS and antitrust issues related to this. In essence, healthcare has become an extremely complex industry. We'll talk later about what this complexity means. These changes have important ramifications for governance and ensuring that what is called the duty of care is adhered to. My guests today, Jonathan Kalatimus, Ph.D. Jonathan is an assistant professor of finance at Oregon State University uh, College of Business. Prior to joining the faculty at OSU, Dr. Kalatimus was a financial economist at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, where he was a lead economist on the Dodd-Frank Action Section 954, which deals with executive compensation clawbacks. His research on corporate governance and financial market regulation has received numerous citations in the popular press, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times, NPR, Bloomberg, and the Harvard Business Review. Jonathan wrote, uh, recently wrote in an interesting article appearing in the 2017 Journal of Corporate Finance on internal governance and performance, which we'll get into uh, as we in, into the show a little bit later. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for having me. Our next guest uh, is Michael Peregrine. Michael is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emory in their Chicago office. Michael advises corporations officers and directors on matters relating to corporate governance, fiduciary duties, and officer-director liabilities issues. Michael regularly writes on the issues of corporate law and governance for the National Law Review. Michael, welcome. Thank you. And our final guest is Thomas Tsai, uh, physician. Dr. Tsai is a surgeon and health policy researcher in the Department of Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital and in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. From 2014 to 2015, he served as a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation in the Office of Health Policy at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He's written articles on the effect of corporate governments in clinical outcomes and quality. Thomas, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Great. So let's start with a, a few elevator pitches as to what you guys actually do, and then we'll get into the meat of the matter. So I'm going to start with Michael. Uh, tell me a little bit about your practice, and uh, just in general, what do you, what are you seeing as the more pressing issues for for for, for corporate uh, corporate governance and, and and working together as boards of directors? Well, you really named them, I think, in healthcare <laughs> right now. Uh, most boards are sitting there evaluating all these issues coming at them. It's like having five fastballs coming at you at the same time. Which one do you catch? I think that really the question is, how do we deal with these? Are we prepared? We kind of know what's coming. Are we set to deal with them? Do we have the resources to deal with them? And how do we structure our relationship with the executive leadership to team and find some solutions? I think that's the critical issue they're facing right now, and that's what they're reaching out on. Okay. 
So you did mention to me previously that there's one major thing that is important for boards to our board members to be uh, to do, and, and what is that? That's engagement. Do you have the time to deal with this? If you sit back and you know, we start with the premise as you identified that you have all these fastballs coming at you. Mm-hmm. Management expects you to have the time to do your job. So whether you have a very difficult day job, if you've got five other boards you're involved with, if you spend half your time in Florida. Those might have worked in the past, but they're disqualifiers now. The the management has to count on you. You've got to be there, and 2018 will be the real pressure point. I want well. Let's talk a little bit about that a little bit later. I want going to, in Florida or a pressure point. <laughs> Talking about 2018 and why, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk right. about that in a second. So, Jonathan, um, you uh, did some research into corporate governance, and you had some. I want to talk about some of the basic findings that you that you uh, that you uh, showed. Um, tell me a little bit about that, please. So uh, my research is really primarily focused on uh, corporate governance and regula- regulation inside an organization, really about those incentive systems. Um, I've been studying this for a while, and what's, what I find interesting about it, and we will get into this a little bit later, is that the, the role of corporate governance is not static. It's really dependent on the specific situation of the organization, whether that's a hospital, a public firm. And, you know, what might work for one organization might not necessarily work for another organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're, we're talking about nonprofit hospitals versus for-profit hospitals, or like I said, public companies versus private companies, the effects it can, um, well, it can change. And I think that's, that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a great economist, and I can say the effect of corporate um, governance depends. It depends. Okay. It, 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 and and uh, it depends based on Based on what exactly? Um, uh, a lot of it's going to be the the overall economic environment right okay. now. Like you said, uh, the the healthcare industry is going through some rapid transformations, and uh, corporate governance needs to be uh, to evolve with that and to, mm-hmm. to be ready to to deal with that transformation. Um, so I did mention that you worked on the issues of clawback. What what's a clawback? So um, a clawback uh, at a very high level is just uh, the ability for a company to to recover erroneously awarded compensation. Mm. So let's just say a CEO's bonus was tied to revenue, and then revenue was misstated, had to be restated. Well, not all of that bonus was entirely earned in actuality, and so the company can claw back or recover some of that erroneously awarded um, compensation. Got it. Okay. And Thomas, um, tell me about the uh, the paper you authored. I think it was in 2015 in Health Affairs on Board Practices. Yeah, and the relation to board, and the hospital performance and quality. So I'm, I'm sorry I cut you off. Yeah, no worries. De- definitely. I think I come at uh, this topic at a slightly different angle than uh, Jonathan and Michael. My interest as a clinician and a health policy researcher is really focused on whether the, alenti- the incentives to improve quality are aligned um, in this era of health reform. And, and re- really with a focus on um, sort of frontline care providers initially and, and on, on metrics to improve quality. It occurred to us, um, uh, my collabor- collaborators and I, was that a lot of the focus was really geared towards um, clinicians on the ground, both to um, publicly report their outcomes as well as um, pay for performance measures. But as in this era of health, uh, health reform, as um, physician practices are more integrated with hospital systems and hospitals themselves are more integrated with each other, it occurred to us there may be different um, um, uh, loci or levels to, to intervene on for potential um, uh, policy interventions geared at improving hospital quality. Mm-hmm. Before we could design policy incentives, we realized you know we actually didn't know if whether um, simple question as um, if a hospital with good outcomes uh, clinically, do they also have good management and, and board's practices? So this was this work was built on previous um, research um, that um, uh, mentors and collaborators uh, Ashish John and Arnie Epstein had done when they surveyed um, um, over 700 uh, board chairs in hospitals across the United States and had some really interesting findings. We um, ended up collaborating with um, um, some folks from Harvard Business School who are part of an international effort called the World Management Survey, um, where they interviewed firms across industries on uh, mostly middle management managerial practices, simple things like operations, um, were they setting targets for performance? Were they tying human resources um, and sort of compensation to those targets? Um, so we, um, the idea came to us that it would be fascinating to see if we could 
link together these data sets and really start getting at the question of whether hospitals that perform well clinically um, in terms of um, better um, evidence-based guidelines and, and, and ultimately outcomes um, such as mortality rates, do they have also um, better managerial practices and board practices? So let's cut to the chase, do they? Yeah, they definitely did. Um, and we okay. hypothesized that, but um, again, the pattern wasn't um, always um, um, uh, always always uh, there for every single hospital. But on average, hospitals that did well on um, um, uh, accepted measures of hospital quality, and this was uh, both in hospitals in the UK as well as the US, um, had better board uh, scores in terms of their performance on on focusing on quality metrics, the amount of time they spent on quality metrics and then also had better managerial scores. Uh And then most fascinating was we found um, there were several different patterns where um, there were distinct board practices that related to managerial practices. And then um, sort of the the thought is that, you know, this may, you know, have downstream, um, whether it's through culture or direct um, involvement with clinicians on improving um, uh, patient outcomes. Uh None of these findings are causal, but it it does... um, lead to sort of intriguing thoughts about whether um, there are multiple avenues where we can improve quality. So not just on on incentivizing physicians, but can we actually improve the quality of care that patients receive by making sure the hospitals are run better. Got it. So it's kind of a top-down approach or bottoms-up approach or both. Yeah, we're both. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Got it. All right. So uh, let's go through some of the basic uh, board responsibilities. Michael, give me some of the things that you think a a board should be doing in this kind of environment. In this environment. Number yeah. number one is staying informed, uh-huh. educating yourself. This goes to my engagement question. Do you know enough about the industry? Do you know enough about the business in order to make the decisions that you're called upon to make? Uh, number two is to be loyal. Uh, make sure your your uh, your fingernails are clean, that you're not involved with conflicts or distraction that would bias your decision-making process. Uh-huh. A new one, Jeff, that's come up in kind of an unsatisfactory way this year is, is responsibility for workforce culture. And we kind of know where that's coming from. <laughs> sure. And the NAC has just done a new corporate paper on that. That's adding a new burden to the board. Um, but it's essentially f- keeping your finger on the pulse of what's going on, going on within the organization, going on outside the organization. So when you're called upon to make a, give a perspective, to weigh in with management, and most of all to make a vote, you kind of know where you're coming from. Okay. So that leads me to the next question, and I'll open it up to the to the group. I'll start with you, Michael, on this, on the issue of independence versus, let's call it affiliated board members. What, you know, there's Sarbanes-Oxley kind of laws that are kind of intertwined with this. Give me a perspective on what's going on from an independent standpoint in these board members. What Are they independent? Are they affiliated? What's, what's going on? It's a tough question. I'm a big believer in the Sarbanes theory that you really need a board to be controlled by people who don't have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was developed for a reason, and I think it made sense. And the unfortunate thing is 15 years later, We've got different folks in the boardroom. Uh, we've got different people running the organization, and they kind of forget what all that was about, and that's a shame. But I do believe that the concept of independent directors, this is this is kind of positional. It's just the numbers. Does, does it lead them to trouble down the road if they're kind of, kind of mixing and matching here with the – It has in the past. The it concept has, okay. is we've got people with yeah. different perspectives, as I said, who don't have skin in the game. Yeah. The, the thought is if we're not beholden to management, are we able to take a perspective that's more in line with our constituents? I believe that. Okay. And I want to talk about some of the positives and negatives related to independent versus affiliated board members. Jonathan, do you have any uh, perspective on this you want to weigh in on? Yeah, uh, um, I agree with a lot of what Michael said. Um, But uh, I I sort of take a a slightly, I don't want to say more nuanced view, but a a different view in that the, the role of an independent director is to bring information from outside the boardroom, outside the organization, inside to the boardroom to facilitate those discussions mm-hmm. um, and ultimately those votes. Um, but really, if a board is completely independent, well, it's very difficult to get information from inside the organization up to the boardroom. It's how do you really know about the culture if you're completely independent? So there needs to be a trade-off. Um, also, with the independence part and the uh, the affiliation, it's it's board selection or director selection is of the utmost importance. With mm-hmm. the, the wrong people, I don't care how independent they are, the board is not going to perform to the best of its ability. And so, some affiliation can actually lead you to choosing the 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 best directors for the job. Maybe not independent on paper, 
but the correct ones. Well, there is some research that has gone on in that, hasn't there? I mean, I actually sent you guys an article on that. On It was by Rand Dushin on um, when are outside uh, directors effective. And so uh, you you guys want to weigh in on that and, and, and the uh, the findings of that? Michael, go ahead. I would say not particularly on those findings, but I, I've generally been of the view that there's in a 9- to 12-year mix where you kind of flip over but from between you lose your independence and you become more or less indep- uh, non-independent. You become a management director. And I think this is why, Jeff, you find that there is no established best practice. The NACD, the Business Roundtable, all these others will say, you know, it's a it's concepts of tenure and refreshment. Those are great topics. You guys... Uh, you know, circumstances demand it, but there's no magic term. There's no magic age limitation. Too hard to do that. Yeah. Um, Thomas, you have a perspective on that, even from a clinician standpoint with boards. I mean, have you have you looked at that at all? So I think what's fascinating is I think how little um, uh, most clinicians um, you know understand um, about hospital board structure and, and, and hmm. governance, generally speaking. Yeah. And yet, you know, in you know, as we have more and more, um, you know, uh, sort of linking of clinical outcomes to, to hospital payment, I think um, a lot more decisions are actually being made um, strategically at, at higher levels, you know, in the hospital, whether in the C-suites or or um, even at the at the board level. So at least my, you know, on the ground sense is that there's often a lot of frustration about how um, hospitals, which are becoming increasingly larger and larger um, organizations, are moving in directions um, that are, may be either opaque to frontline providers um, or in some, and sometimes even views are contrary to, um, to, um, to sort of clinical care on the ground. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a, a need um, for, I think, better um, integration, I think, of the, of the overall um, sort of hospital strategy with um, at least the clinical insight from the ground. Got it. So you're listening to um, The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. Um, I'm Jeff Foyt. Uh, I'm one of the hosts. Today we're talking about uh, board, uh, corporate board governance and makeup. Uh, my guests today are Jonathan Kalatimus, who's an assistant professor at Oregon State University, Michael Peregrine, who's a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emory, and Thomas Sai, who is a surgeon and a health policy researcher at Harvard. So let's, let's talk about some of the, the, the basic... Uh, concepts here. One of them is called uh, the duty of care. What does that mean? The duty Michael? of it means basically you give it your best shot. You, uh-huh. It's not a complicated. <laughs> you know, there's somewhere back in the ancient times there was actually a person named Fiduciarius. So we, we uh, and the duty <laughs> what, of, was there? Yeah, believe really? it or not, can you can envision Gre- Greek, Greek or something? Oh, a long okay. white robe and beard. Uh, but the duty of care has really not changed. A at Moses all. type, right? Uh, yeah, I, will, okay, yeah, I won't okay. go there. But right. <laughs> uh, the concept, though, Jeff, is that you're expected to commit yourself to being informed and exercising your duty on the basis of what a reasonable person should do under the circumstances. And the mm-hmm. filter, and this is relevant for our discussion today, mm-hmm. are the circumstances of the job and the task. And so right. the question of duty of care is, again, you give it your best shot, you try and make the right decisions, you make it and keep your finger on the pulse, but the level of engagement depends upon the complexity of the job. And in healthcare, that's an increasingly enormous job. So is that that is kind of the, um, let's call it the benchmark or the threshold. That if you run into legal issues, that's what they kind of look at as to whether or not you're actually... You've done your job. Yeah. You've done your job. And the business judgment rule is the typical protection. So when you see boards challenged for failure of duty of care... There's a, the argument really needs to be you've really messed up. You've exercised bad faith. Not only did you know you were doing wrong, you really intended to do wrong. Uh, now, the concern will be, and we're starting to see some breaks in this, whether courts will continue to uphold that standard in egregious situations. If I was a betting man, you'll see this first in the cybersecurity breach cases. Really? Yeah. In in in, in general or in just in healthcare? I, I think in general. But yeah. then the question where where the breach affects broad ranges of consumers, will you continue to will a judge be courageous enough to say sorry? So like an and, Epifax or Well, yeah, yeah you yeah. know, those are the situations. What did you know and when did you know it and what did you Got do it. about it? Yeah. The business judgment rule could come under siege in twenty eighteen. Okay. So I'm just going to uh, throw out just a basic question to you guys. And, and, and right now, just the way that boards are constructed and, and their makeup, are, are, they, are they being sufficiently responsive to the transformations in the environment? Um, Thomas, do you, you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I think um, I think one of the fascinating studies um, we uh, found in the earlier iteration of the board survey 
was that uh, two thirds of the board members felt that they were um, you know, above average performers, and only one percent uh, thought they were below average. Hmm. So there's definitely at least a a, a disconnect from um, the reality on the ground of how a hospital is performing, uh, especially clinically, versus um, uh, what the perception is among the boards. And there's definitely a, a varying degree of um, board expertise in terms of um, the clinical side and then on on this broad new array of uh, quality metrics, um, uh, especially after uh, the Affordable Care Act. So I think there's um, at least my sense, at least, and this is borne out in the in the survey data, which are now a little bit dated, is that there's definitely a lot of room for improvement in um, both the, the training of uh, board members on, on their awareness of, of clinical quality as well as the amount of attention being paid. I suspect that there's probably more and more so uh, if we were uh, attention paid to quality if we were to repeat the survey in 2017 versus uh, 2009. Yeah, so it was, I think it was 2010 was a survey, and, and, and I was really surprised at, at that point in time that there really was not universal um, uh, attention paid to the issues of quality back then. It was, I don't know, 63% of the boards were actually said that was a priority, and, and there was 37% that said that it was less. And, and, and actually, it showed that those that didn't focus on quality, the quality met, their, their quality metrics were, were worse. So, That's yeah, so, so you're, think, you're saying or thinking in the past six years that they've actually re- they really focused in on that particular issue of quality as it relates. You know, there's a num- numerous reasons for that, too. I think so, and I yeah. think what drives the board focuses um, are these large um, um, uh, federal policy um, mm-hmm. uh, initiatives, you know, mostly driven through um, uh, Medicare reimbursement and Medicare regulations. Um, in that um, uh, survey, we had found that the, the uh, over half the boards were focusing on hospital-acquired infections and medication errors and joint commission qu- uh, core measures and patient satisfaction. Yep. So I think the the environment of um, quality metrics that are being either mandated or um, uh, uh, for public reporting or even pay for performance for hospitals and physicians, that does bubble up to the attention of the boards, which really argues that there is an important role for um, linking the the sort of quality and and um, performance reporting um, on the quality side with with board structures, I think, and there's I believe less sort of organic um, um, sort of uh, local um, topics that are being addressed on quality at at the board level, and mm-hmm. their focus is really driven by these uh, more larger national priorities, and I think that's an argument for. Um, you know, a thoughtful development of quality metrics um, because boards do pay attention. Got it. Um, Jonathan, you have a perspective on you think they're responsive, these uh, governance? Um, not a, a particular, um, I don't have any particular current data uh, mm-hmm. to speak mm-hmm. to that, but I think this really emphasizes the, the importance of board refreshment policies and getting the right people in there for the right environment. Board refreshment, you mean by replacement of board members, yeah? Um, I, I, either replacement or evaluating whether that board member is the correct board member to go forward. How the heck do you, I, yeah, how do you, I, how you evaluate whether a board member is productive? I mean, well, just do they sit around uh, the table and kind of say <laughs> disparaging uh, things about them? Is you know, that kind I, of how I, it happens? <laughs> I haven't quite uh, sat on enough boards yeah. to, to get that firsthand experience, but um, the <laughs> board refreshment and board evaluation seems to be an under-researched area yeah. that um, I, I think is becoming more and more important. Uh, Michael mentioned uh, what he was calling uh, management directors, or we call uh, co-opted directors. They've just been there so long that they're a bit beholden to management, and their performance can suffer, and they can be potentially shielded from refreshment. Got it. I, th- I think these uh, formal refreshment policies are becoming more and more important so, as the environment. So Michael's looking at me, and I, I, want, I want to get his perspective on how, how do you evaluate whether a board member is being productive or not. Well, I, first of all, I agree that you have to. And, and yeah. the, the problem comes in there that there is no best practice. We all look for simple uh, black and white rules. And then on this one, there's not because there's no way to say you're 65 and you're off or something. Sh- that, should there be some kind of guidelines as to how do you evaluate a board member? I or? think that the, the evaluation standards are a little different. The key point is you've got to evaluate them. You've yeah. got to be tougher. You've got to be more critical. And I think you can work with, and there are standards. Who that, makes it this? 
decision for the chairman? That's the full board, the nominating uh, committee. Okay, okay got but it. Yeah, you, yeah. The, the stakes are too great not to evaluate boards on a regular basis. If you're disruptive, if you're not doing your homework, if you don't show up, if you ask stupid questions that distract the board from its duties, those are all high-level factors. But the bottom line is there has to be a formal enforced mechanism to continuously evaluate the contributions of a director. We don't have time to waste with someone who's unproductive. Really? Okay. So, Michael, I want to touch on this a little bit, and we'll talk about it after the break, is um, this uh, law that's coming down the pike on tax reform and how it affects, um, there's kind of a little something put into this law from Grassley. Uh, can you just touch on that a little bit? Well, it's you know this is one of these most fascinating things that the Senate, the House Ways and Means Committee, and the Senate Finance Committee have both adopted provisions which are unusually punitive of the taxes on healthcare sector, and there's a long history there. But as this both bills have rolled forward, they've attempted to whack taxes on financing. Uh, there have been efforts to remove guidelines on how you develop uh, executive compensation. And the one that's lasted, and it will, as of the bill Saturday night, is an excise tax on hospital executive compensation of over a million dollars. And Just as for not-for-profit. Not-for-profit tax exemption. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and so that would dramatically change uh, it, the way hospital CEOs are paid and would force boards to agreed to pay the excise tax. It's going to be a profound change to the way they retain uh, and recruit uh, CEOs. But the more important factor is Congress is really sending the tax-exempt health care sector the middle finger. They're, t- they're just saying, you know, guys, you're not special anymore, and we're just not going to cut you the slack. And in the, Is it because it, they're too profitable? Is healthcare too profitable? We don't say too profitable on that line. We and say then, their revenues are too high. Uh, but healthcare, you could also say that healthcare policy has forced this consolidation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the the real uh, impact will be the big tax exempt systems will say should we should we now start looking at moving some of our assets into the for profit world because the bargain's not there anymore. So you, you think that's going to happen? I think they're starting to think about. It. They have to. Yeah, okay. So we're going to take a, a short break here, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. You're listening to the Business of Healthcare and Sirius XM 111, and today we're talking about corporate governance with Michael Perrigan from McDermott, Will, and Emory, uh, Jonathan Clatamus from Oregon State University, and Thomas Sai from Harvard. We'll be back in a few. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is Jeff Voigt. Hi, this is Jeff Voigt, and you're listening to the Business Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. Today, we're talking about corporate board governance, and my guests are Michael Peregrine from McDermott, Will, and Emory, a partner there who deals um, almost ex- you deal exclusively with corporate board issues. Got it? Okay, great. Uh, Thomas Sai, who is a surgeon and health policy researcher at Harvard, and, and Jonathan Kalatomis, who is an assistant professor at Oregon State University. So let's get... Let's talk a little bit about some of the disruption, business disruption, most especially, and some of the stuff, you know, and Michael appropriately said Silicon Valley stuff that's going on with Amazon kind of encroaching into this area and, you know, and and looking at uh, pharmacy-type businesses and probably other types of business. What does that mean for a corporate board member looking at these types of disruptions and and the makeup of the board itself? I mean, what kind of skills are they going to need that maybe they don't have right now? Um, Mike, we have a perspective on that. I think first and foremost, the skill set is the need and the ability to recognize where it can come from, where the threats are, and to accept those threats. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole concept of uh, how the Silicon Valley companies have changed their respective businesses and then recognizing that that can happen here. Uh-huh. And then what kind of resource can we be to management to deal with that? And so you're talking about massive disruption. Massive disruption. And, 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 and you, you really think that? I mean, there's stuff Without a doubt. That, well, there's stuff like from Clayton Christensen who talks about... He's the guy, yeah. Yeah, well, he talks about disruption, and, and you know, you have very big players in this market who are essentially your competitors, and you have a disruptive technology coming in. I mean, they're going to do their darndest to try to stop it or even try to even try to copy it, um, in essence. Uh, or if they ignore it, they'll probably be in trouble. But, I mean, that's, that's the classic issue of having very large organizations like pharma companies, you know, looking at these kind of gene therapy kind of technologies and uh, looking at it carefully, maybe tip, tipping their toe in the water, 
but in essence trying to slow it down in, in, in many ways, I would guess, because it, it's totally an anathema to the way they do business. So, again, you're, you're saying that that that's that doesn't work anymore. You're, you're gonna you're thinking this this is disruption. It's going to happen. I think it, I think the director has to be familiar enough with the business practices of the Silicon Valley disruptors to understand how it could happen. Uh-huh. I think the concept is you know the, the, how these technology firms have used price and scale and data to remove the friction from business transactions. What's the translation to healthcare? Well, you there's know, tons of data out there. The problem is, uh, is it being used? Well, the yeah, yeah but the, and then I think that really it takes the imagination and support of the director to say, yes, this could happen. If you just close your mind and say, we're not Netflix, we're not Borders, we're not cab companies, that's the kind of closed mind that will hurt board performance. Mm-hmm. And understanding that, yeah, this could happen, and let's talk about this, and let's where are they going to come at us and. What are our responsive strategies? It's an open mind to the potential for disruption that's needed at the board so, level. So how do they educate themselves on this stuff? How does a board educate themselves on this kind of disruptive technology? What, what do they need to do? Is it, is it just kind of self-learning? Or no, is I, think, I think that there are people that, that are out there, the Ken Coffins of the world, who can come in and say, this is how it's happening. The, the people who study this concept of disruption and the evolution of it and how it could happen in healthcare, I think you have to go out and find those people. And then I think when you have that discussion, it just opens up and you say, Oh, well, yeah. I can, you know, and that's a little frightening. That. And yeah. then it's a little frightening. Yeah. So, Jonathan, what do you think about, I mean, you look at different businesses. I mean, business disruption in, in general, disruptors, how do they affect uh, a board and what, is, what do boards need to do? So, um, I'm actually really happy that there's a lot of disruption going on um, just from a overall economy perspective. Um, pressure, uh, especially product market pressures, can over the long run, really improve the quality of product. Um, this is putting a lot of pressure on hospitals in the healthcare sector, or the existing healthcare sector. I, I really hope they are not successful in slowing down progress. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I, I want to revisit a, a, a point just a minute ago. Um, imagine it's like 10 years ago, and somebody, a, a hospital board, puts a technology guy on, or woman, on that board. Mm-hmm. You might, might look a little bit crazy, but the the that kind of um, perspective of where these disruptions are going to come from is really important. So I'm not entirely sure the extent to which board um, or director training or director or bringing outside consultants to update an existing board or existing directors is the, the right approach. Mm-hmm. I really think um, that bringing in experts that are pre-existing um, would be uh, a very productive way as opposed to, you know, teaching an old dog new tricks. Right. Fortunately, let's just bring in a new dog. Uh, so you're talking about an, a new board member or you're talking about educating through outside consulting t- to the board or, or both? Um, both. Yeah. But I, I mean, I would lean towards bringing in new board members in a really? controlled fashion to okay. make sure that there's continuity um, mm-hmm. because there is a tremendous amount of institutional knowledge that comes with time. Yep. But bringing people on, dropping some people off, um, while it might be a little bit cruel, it's good for the organization, which, as we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the board has a duty of care. Yeah, got it. Thomas, do you have a perspective on this from even from the hospital side and, and the boards? I mean, are, are you seeing, are you seeing um, some unique board composition at the, uh, at the hospital provider level? Yeah, I think, for example, in my hospital, Brigham and Women's, um, there's a uh, uh, both a patient safety committee as well as a quality committee, and both of those committees actually have um, resident representatives, for example. Um, So Mm -hmm. not just clinicians, but actually... Um, you know, very you know, frontline on the ground um, residents who are, you know, taking care of patients uh, uh, under 80 hours a week, um, you know, uh, sitting in these board meetings and, and giving the uh, the rest of the board um, um, an on-the-ground view of sort of how these um, bigger strategic decisions are actually being played out on the ground. So I think the board composition is changing um, at, at, at some of these larger academic teaching hospitals where there's some recognition that um, there's a need for physicians to be, it's not just the boards being more educated about um, clinical practices or, or disruption on the business side and, um, and um, sort of, of other areas where they may have less ex- expertise, but it's the same for clinicians to be also educated on, on what the boards um, uh, are, are doing and sort of their challenges. Um, so I think there, it is, really is a two-way street and should be. 
Got it. Uh, you're going to say something, Michael. Go ahead. Well, I think we, there has been something in the papers that relates to this lately, and that's the reconstitution of the GE board. And we've all read about their need to re, re, you know, retool and, and reconstruct their business model. But in so doing, they dramatically reduced the size of their board and reconstituted their board, as, as we've just been talking about, to try and find the people that will lead them in the future. And the debate right now amongst the governance observers is, you know, this mix of diversity, which is so critical, uh, diversity of gender, race, and experience and background, and the competency-based board as well has been talked about. And then there are those who say, just give me people who have common sense and who are just smart folks. <laughs> I don't know if there's any right answer, but I think yeah. what GE did was answer it that question with what they thought was in their best interests. And that's a market leader. And so we need to pay attention to that. So uh, they're reconstituting their board as we speak, yes? Yes, moving some people off and yeah. adding some people on us. Yeah, yeah. okay. And, and, and to your to your knowledge, these people that are coming on are probably from very different areas. And, I think, yeah, I think yeah. if you read in the journal that these are people where the, where the board leadership said we need a different perspective to take the company where it needs as we need retool in the future. Got it. And that they had the courage to do so. Yeah, interesting. Um, Thomas, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, the the quality, and equality has become, you know, kind of the has uh, um, become the issue. I, I think in, in, in you know, in, in caring for patients and high quality. And do you think it's going to be impacted uh, over time with what's going on with the uh, uh, with what Trump's trying to do? Um, definitely. I mean, I think. Oh. Um, you know, there's the broader sort of um, changes um, um, with the um, um, issues around coverage and access to health care um, with the repeal, potential repeal, the individual mandate and, mm -hmm. uh, as part of the tax uh, bill. Um, and, you know, as part of the Affordable Care Act, there's been huge um, strides made in reducing the amount of the uninsured uh, in the United States, historic lows um, uh, since um, sort of the launch of Medicare and Medicaid. Really? Um, and it's a combination of both Medicaid expansion, um, but also a combination of of um, of a lot of the changes and uh, to to insurance companies and insurance policies on the national level, so allowing folks to um, you know the um, guaranteed issue, which is allowing insurance companies uh, um, uh, or actually allowing folks with uh, uh, pre-existing conditions uh, to still be eligible for insurance coverage. Um, other so less known provisions like uh, um, the dependent coverage provision, which lets uh, individuals uh, under the age of 26 remain on the parents' health plan. So there was, uh, I think, a fundamental change to how um, insurance companies are regulated in the U.S. Um, and there's a big concern that um, those um, um, what most folks view, I think, are beneficial changes in terms of increasing the access to health care for um, uh, underserved populations uh, are at, at a threat. And especially, uh, maybe Jonathan or Michael may, may weigh in on this, is on the insurance side, you need the healthy um, folks in order to balance out the risk pool. So by um, uh, doing away with individual mandate, you end up um, uh, leaving uh, – you know, really reducing the risk pool, and mm -hmm. and um, it's uh, premiums are going to go up because then all that's left are, are are those who do require sort of more chronic healthcare needs and maybe sort of more higher spenders or utilizers of of healthcare services. So it's this um, um, uh, kind of very uh, terrifying catch twenty two. Um, what's what's ahead? And we've made mm -hmm. such great strides in terms of not just giving people access to insurance, but there's been real benefits shown in terms of. Um, uh, reducing financial stress and medical bankruptcy rates. And there's, I think, in the next couple of years, as some of these data uh, catch up to the world on the ground, is will be actual clinical benefits to be shown um, as a result of... Um, so you're, uh, sir, you're worried about insurance. quality becoming less important over time based on what's going on with uh, the pushes from, from Trump. And, you know, and that kind of leads me, and Michael, you talked about this during the break, is, you know, the Wells Fargo situation where there was a really incentive to, to you know, to make revenues. And and so you, you you mentioned that it's probably going to be a clash with healthcare. There may be some organizations out there that are really just focused on just getting as much as they can. And is that is that going to? Well, they have to be. I mean, there are consultants yeah. out there whose jobs, as we all know, is to, to drive <laughs> revenue and and to and to work. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the the, the broader concept, I would I would go back. This focus on quality of care is critical because the, just the changes, you know, the the changes to the Affordable Care Act that are planned and proposed that is enough to fill a board's plate and explode their uh, their brains for <laughs> a year uh, for next year alone yeah. and now we're adding all these other issues 
But the incentive issue is something the board has to monitor because there is always the potential that what I would call sales or revenue or quality or whatever it is, business incentives that are even that are made them properly defined can have unintended consequences on individual corporate culture. And that's the problem. And that's it's a difficult one for boards to monitor, but they're expected. That's you, we have to add that to their plate in 2018. So uh, I want to get to your comment about 2018 and some of these businesses turning for profit. And, w- and what does that mean from a, um, uh, a board governance standpoint and some of the businesses they have to look at? Uh, help, help me understand what, what that may do to, to the healthcare market. I, I think the bottom line is if you are on the not-for-profit healthcare side, it's no longer heresy to consider conversion. We start from the premise that's no longer a uh, you know a taboo topic. You've got to ask the question: Do we need to start? You know, do we need to start moving our assets into a into a private company or joint venture model? Is that the best for our mission? Uh, what are the consequences of that? I think it's an enormous step for the board to have that conversation, and they're going to have to have it. Okay, Sorry. you have to. Yeah, because the bargain. I think that the the fundamental message from Congress is that bargain between the tax-exempt sector and the IRS just as, may not be worth it anymore. So it's be- going to become next year more onerous to be a not-for-profit organization than healthcare, and, from, and just from a, a, a pure tax standpoint. I don't know how you could come to any other conclusion. Really interesting. Okay. And um, if I, yeah. you don't mind, I'll jump in. Sure. Um, with, the, with this conversion— You're, you're Jonathan, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, with the, the, the conversion to a public company, um, they, they do have different incentives, but they also have access to additional sources of capital. So as these disruptions um, occur and they need to pivot their business model, well, they do have equity capital markets there to raise that capital to make sure they can actually um, accommodate that transition. Um, additionally, they might have access to additional directors who might not be willing to serve mm-hmm. on a nonprofit board. Um, and, uh, you know, a third benefit to, to going public here is executive compensation is crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, and a nonprofit has limited uh, methods to compensate their executives and their management um, going public. So it, it sounds like to both of you guys, it sounds like there's going to be there's going to need to be a different board makeup just to look at that particular going from not for profit to for profit. You're going to be ne- you're going to need to be looking at those kind of people who work in the for profit side of business, no matter where it is, um, and and understand access to capital and all that kind of. How do you keep a CEO of a $15 million not-for-profit business if you can only pay him a million dollars a year? Now, now that sounds you know, uh, awful if you, if you make a dollar a year, but that, I mean, that's the, those are the yeah. kinds of questions that they have yeah. to answer. And I will tell you, Jeff, this is one of the unintended consequences. There are 50 state attorney generals across the country whose job is to supervise the nonprofit sector. And they, uh, they're responsible. They're going to be watching federal health care, federal tax policy push billions of dollars out of the nonprofit sector and away from their jurisdiction, and they don't see it coming yet. Really? And so, so what does that mean? <laughs> well, we're gonna, this is kind of sidestepping. The attorney general standpoint, I mean, they're going to lose their jobs. Or, no, but, or, the, they, but or they just, they're not going to know how to handle it. No, we're, no. Here, we're here in Pennsylvania today, a yeah. state that has enormous focus on the monitoring charities uh, of all kinds. It means yeah. that it, that we're going to lose a, a lar- potentially a large section of an industry that was historically devoted to charitable purposes. Got it. Is that good policy? I, that's over my head, but that's yeah. it, that's what's going to happen. Interesting. Yeah. To put a number to that, um, yeah. after the first years of the Affordable Care Act. This over, is Thomas, right? This Tom, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, go ahead. So, Please. you know, because of the increase in, in insurance coverage, over $5 billion of previously uncompensated care was is, was now compensated. This is back in 2014, 2015 uh, data. Mm-hmm. So the dollar amounts of, 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 of um, are actually huge in terms of increased revenues. And I think, I, I think you know, both of the other panelists are exactly right. It's going to create a, a new set of challenges um, uh, um, for boards, and, you know, that also requires a new set of sort of skills. Interesting. So you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Jeff Hoyt. I'm one of the hosts. Today we're talking about uh, corporate board governance, and I have as guest Michael Perrigan from McDermott, Will & Emery, who's a partner, deals exclusively with boards. Uh, Thomas Sy, who is a uh, surgeon and a health policy analyst at um, 
uh, researcher at uh, Harvard, and uh, Jonathan Kalatimus, who is an assistant professor at Oregon State University. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears here a little bit. I'm, there's a couple of uh, other entities I want to talk a little bit about the boards need to pay attention to, and I'm just curious as to your perspectives on this as, you know, as it relates to the um, Inspector General's office and Medicare and Medicaid. Um, are, are they doing a, doing a good job in being responsive to the, to the laws? I mean, I would say in, in just in general. Michael? Oh, I, I would say, you know, there's always the, the thought that under the current administration, our rules and enforcement policies being relaxed, I guess from my perspective strictly as a lawyer, uh, I see no indication of that. In fact, I think it's kind of the contrary. Hmm. Uh, we see the the possibility that the, the so-called Yates Memorandum, the famous uh, uh, memorandum of a couple of years ago on individual accountability, might be rolled back a little bit. but at the, but So what, what is the Yates Memorandum? The, the Yates Memorandum is essentially the warning to folks saying, we're going to go after to boards and corporations. We're going to go after the corporation, but we understand it's ultimately the individuals who are responsible, and we're going to start uh, our investigation day one by looking at them, and boards, you better throw your folks under the bus if you want proper treatment. <laughs> That's in, in, in a simplistic way. Uh, the perverse uh, result is, if there's even the slightest bit of relaxation of that rule, uh, you could unleash the forces within an organization and they're always there. The guys will say, okay, I've got a little more leeway here to, 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 to achieve my goals uh, and I may push uh, the envelope a little more. Okay. Uh, but uh, I, I think the indications are that while there may be some aspects of that rule that will be relaxed, I think you hear from Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, that the focus on individual accountability is not going to change. The government is com- totally committed to focusing on those individuals who are ultimately responsible for the wrongdoing. That's just not going to change. Got it. So, again, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit and talk about um, management and their responsibility to the board and how board members interact with management and how does that how is that facilitated or is it hindered by even the makeup of, of boards themselves? Um, Jonathan, you have any perspective on that? So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that there's becoming more and more overlap between management and board responsibilities, especially uh, with regard to strategic thinking and uh, mm-hmm. strategic planning. Um, like you said, these disruptions are, are happening left and right, and they're happening faster and faster. And the, uh, the, the management team or the executives are really in the best place to understand the ins and outs of that organization and how they're going to strategically respond um, but the the board has their, or at least should be constructed with outsiders, with these independent directors that have expertise in the strategic planning. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's going to be some tension here, um, and it does make a case for uh, having certain executives um, or a fraction of the executives on the board to to really facilitate these strategic uh, discussions and plans. So has has there been research in looking at you know the um, actually the relationship and the interaction between management and board and their ability to um, to produce uh, good good results? Um, I'm sure Jonathan, you have some perspective on that. And I, I, I do, yeah. and um, and this is one of those uh, very I don't want to say touchy subjects, but um, there's been a long literature that having uh, a dual you know, chairman CEO is detrimental to performance, uh-huh. um, and you know, having too many insiders on the board is detrimental to performance. But I think it was a, a little bit of blunt research, and newer research here is saying that hey, it depends on your particular environment that you're operating with. Mm-hmm. Um, with all this going on in the healthcare sector, um, the what I would call the information environment is getting more and more complex. Um, you know, how is this regulation changing? What does it mean for us? How do we need to pivot? And these are questions I think that management's in a good position to 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 weigh in on. And you know, I, I think that uh, while the the historical research might have said that having too many insiders or executives on the board is detrimental, mm-hmm. I, I think there need or I shouldn't say needs, um, but there could be some benefits to to shifting some of them onto the board. Okay. Um, Michael, your experience with board members and management, um, 
uh, in general, would you say that, I mean, the better the interaction with management, the better the performance of the company and, and, and the board itself? Yes. I, I would say, first of all, there was a point earlier on about the overlap between management, governance, and strategy, and that's an excellent point. Yep. I think it's a new day, Jeff. I think there's there's no data out there. The things are moving too quickly. I think the real question and boards are and management need to sit down and say, how is this going to work in terms of disruption? What is our relationship? Are there areas where we're partners? Are there areas where we are deferential to management? Are there areas where we have to approach things together? I think it requires a dialogue within the, the composition of a particular board, but they've got to understand, let's, let's confront it. We've got this co- train coming down the tracks. Does it affect the way we work with each other? One thing I think we know, uh, and that is, a board sitting on its hands, being excessively deferential to management and say, hey, you guys know the industry, you know, let us know when you want us to vote, that would be a catastrophic result. Mm-hmm. 100%. Thomas. I, I, I agree. I think especially speaking for hospitals and and um, and healthcare providers, it's becoming so complicated and so bureaucratic. They're really... Um, does need to be uh, much more overlap and uh, both overlap, but I think, but also delegation of, of tasks, uh, tasks before it was a hospital board, you know, a chief medical officer, CEO of the hospital, you know, chief financial officer and physicians and, and really, you know, maybe a chief of staff, but not, not much in between. Mm-hmm. But I think as hospitals get larger and hospitals now um, own large outpatient practices and ambulatory centers and, and then other hospitals, I think the whole corporate structure is changing in terms of how we, um, on the clinical side, deliver care. And then in sort of all the the people um, between the, the care on the ground versus you know, the overall decisions being made um, for the overall organization. So I think there's needs to be, um, I mean, and, and I think it's a black box. We don't know sort of how um, you know, strategic initiatives are being uh, passed down in terms of uh-huh. Um, uh, on the ground with, uh, you know, clinical nurse managers or physician leaders or, um, you know, division chiefs, and then what that means for individual providers and nurses. So I think there's a lot um, lot to be learned, um, and especially as it gets more and more complex and, and yeah. oftentimes larger. Okay, so we have about 30 seconds each, and I want to uh, take away from uh, what we've talked about today. Michael, give me your takeaway. Glass half full. There are enormous challenges, but a properly focused board can accomplish uh, an effective response. You can get it done. Don't be afraid. Got it. Jonathan? Um, That the board is uh, tremendously important to performance and that they need the right people at the right time and be willing to to reconstitute their board as needed. Um, This is going to be clutch over the next, uh, well, years. Thomas? I think if we can align the incentives of the boards, the man- the managers, and then the clinicians on the ground, you can really move the needle on quality. Okay. So you've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Jeff Foyt, one of the hosts, and today we've been talking about corporate board governance. I want to thank my guests, Michael Peregrine from McDermott, Will & Emery, who was kind enough to fly out today from Chicago. Thank, thank you. you so much for thank coming you. in. Appreciate it. Jonathan Clatamus from Oregon State University, an assistant professor there. Jonathan, thanks for your participation. And Thomas Sai from Harvard, I want to thank you as well. So this will be played uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week. Um, you can check the times, I, I would imagine. I do want to thank um, I want to thank Dana Cash, the producer, for putting uh, this together and helping us with this. And uh, as always, and I want to thank you for listening today. Thanks for your time, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you next week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.